0: We are uh, taking a few weeks of a break here, but uh, continuing verse by verse through the book of Matthew. We're going to be doing this for the next few weeks until we get into uh, our fall series on uh, experiencing God. And uh, we're entering into chapter 24, which came back from a vacation. I was like, oh man, it's like hardest chapter in all of Matthew, uh, but uh, it's gonna it's gonna be good. Alright, catch up to speed. Uh, chapter 23, we're uh, almost done with that chapter. Uh, we're just a couple weeks, uh, a couple days, sorry, away from Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, Jesus was crucified on Friday. We're on Wednesday. Uh, Jesus has been confronted by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees that are trying to discredit him. They're jealous of him. They don't like Jesus. They're, they're wanting to, to kill him. They're planning to kill Jesus. Jesus in Matthew chapter twenty-three has been been responding to them, uh, been talking to the crowds, talking to the religious leaders about all the garbage that was in their hearts, uh, how that uh, the Pharisees and religious leaders were people who thought they were closer to God than anyone else. Uh, they thought they were the ones who had the the, the deepest relationship with God. And Jesus is revealing that really they are actually some of, the, some of the farthest people away from God. That they were people who got their life not from God, but from their rules and feeling superior uh, over, over other people. And Jesus talked about how they were a roadblock to the kingdom and they were filled with pride and, and all kinds of horrible things that they were teaching and, and were going on in, in their life. And we just talked about that trap and how all of us at times can fall into that trap of becoming like a Pharisee. And that happens whenever we begin to get our life from some other place other than, than Jesus. We need to always make sure that we are deriving our life and our satisfaction and our passion from Jesus, not from our rules or because we're doing better than other people or, hey, look at, look at me, right? And so Jesus here has one more basic message It's kind of his last public uh, teaching before his crucifixion. And finally, he says this to the religious leaders and the crowds. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. And and Jerusalem was known, if you read the Old Testament, for killing some of God's messengers. Uh, Jerusalem did not have uh, the, the greatest history in that area And it's interesting, yet Jesus says, How often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. That Jerusalem was known for killing some of the prophets and the messengers that God had sent. Jesus himself, being God, is standing there, and these religious leaders want to kill him. I mean that's the ultimate of sin of 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 of, of blasphemy is wanting that they're wanting to kill Jesus. Yet Jesus does not respond with you know you know burning the city right away or anger. He says I, I still want to gather my desires to to gather you like a chicken and stick you under my wing. And that's the heart of God. God is wanting to gather people under his wing where there is refuge, where there is protection, where there is blessing. And there's only one thing that is keeping you from being under the wing of God. And, and he says it here, and he says, and you are not willing. It's not God who is keeping you away from him. It's our hearts. And every single one of you could be under the wing of of God right now, if if you're not already. You can be there just by opening up your heart to Him, to just be willing. And never fall into the trap of thinking, well, you know, I've just lived such a terrible life or I've done so many horrible things. I don't think God would want me because if He really knew what was going on in my heart, which He already does, you know, He would not want me. He wants you. Like a, a mother hen trying to gather a baby chick, he wants you and to take care of you and to, and, to, and to put you into that place of safety. You just need to be willing to go there. And one of those stories that kind of reminds us of the heart of God is that Old Testament story of King Manasseh, who was one of the worst kings of the entire Old Testament, who uh, the Bible says that he filled the streets of Jerusalem with innocent blood. So a lot of people he killed who were innocent. He sacrificed his kid to pagan gods. He uh, led Jerusalem absolutely astray. He was one of the worst kings because God did not want the suffering of his people. He allowed Manasseh to be captured by the Assyrians and he ends up in this Assyrian prison because of his sin. And it was there that he, he opens up his heart to God and, and he says, in his distress he sought, The favor of the Lord is God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. And that story is a reminder of us it doesn't matter how awful of a life you've lived or what you are even going through right now or dealing with in your heart, whether it's addiction or sin or struggle or trials, God is calling you. He said, I want to put you under my wing. Are you willing? And so we're always going to be dealing with our heart, even as believers, to make sure that we're always just surrendering our wills to Jesus because the place of of strength and refuge is, is to be in the arms of Jesus. It's not worth living a life apart from Jesus because you are leaving the one who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-good, who knows what's going on in this world and what's going to happen. I mean, that's the place we want to be living. And so my entreaty, Jesus' desire is that just open your heart to Jesus. Open your heart to Jesus. Be there under His wing. And he is concerned for them because he knows that their temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in about 30 years, uh, 40 years down the road from this time. He says to them, look, your house is left to you desolate. Speaking of the temple, and he calls it your house. He doesn't say my house or or God's house as it's often uh, talked about. He actually says it's your house. It was to be a house of prayer, became a den of thieves and robbers. These religious leaders were not for God. They were working against of God. And so as kind of an image, he's saying, look, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus is about to leave the temple for the last time, never to return. Just as Ezekiel's vision in the Old Testament where God's presence leaves the temple because of the sin of his people, so too Jesus is going to leave the temple for the last time. And as he speaks about it becoming desolate, this beautiful temple would be destroyed in 70 AD and all of Jerusalem along with it. You can see Jesus' passion for, again, for his people and for us and for the city It says, as he approached Jerusalem, this is from Luke 19, this is the the triumphal entry. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, and he's not weeping over the the buildings, but the people. He knows suffering is coming. He knows that he is the one who could take them under his wing, but they're not willing. And, And he's weeping over the people as Jesus weeps over those who have gone astray today. And he says, If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And that peace is through Jesus. The days will come upon you when enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And that would happen in 70 AD. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And and Josephus says within that Jewish war that a million Jews would be killed, a hundred thousand taken into slavery. They will not leave one stone On another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. In other words, they could maybe have been protected, but because they chose to go astray and no longer be under the wing of Jesus, they were open to the enemy. That's the same with us. If we stray from Jesus, if we stray from a close walk with him, I mean, we're only opening ourselves up to the enemy who the Bible says is like a roaring lion looking for someone to desire, whose desire is to kill, steal, and destroy. And it's only in the arms of Jesus that we're, we're safe and we're protected, at least according to God's will for our life. And then finally, he says, his last kind of major saying, besides the ones on the cross, he says to the crowds, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, he's not being literal here because they're going to see him again like on Friday, right? Because he's hanging on the cross and the crowds see him. They shout to Jesus, crucify him. They will see him again. And so most uh, interpreters agree that Jesus is being figurative here. Some would say that he's being figurative of his return to uh, Judge Jerusalem when it's destroyed. Others, and, and I kind of prefer this view, is saying figurative that, that, that we really see Jesus when we open our hearts to him. When we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's when we really see Jesus for who he is, when we enter that relationship with him. All right. Chapter 24 is... Uh, what we are entering now, uh, sometimes known as the Olivet Discourse, because in verse 3, uh, Jesus is speaking from the Mount of Olives and he gives all of chapter 24 uh, overlooking the city. And uh, if you've been to Jerusalem, if you're on the Mount of Olives, this is the, the modern day view of the city. You have an amazing view. Uh, Jesus would of the temple and the Temple Mount area and and the city. And this is where he gives this little uh, sermon to his disciples from. Also known as the the Little Apocalypse. uh, It's another name for Matthew chapter 24. So he leaves the temple and it says this. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him uh, and called his attention to its buildings. Mark's version says as Jesus was leaving the temple... One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Calling Jesus and saying, take a look at the temple. Take a look at these huge stones. Because the temple was truly one of the the wonders of the world in that day. Uh, huge, huge building project that began in 19 B.C. under Herod. He took the, the temple that was there that was built under Zerubbabel and he just made it so much bigger and expanded the temple mount. Some of the walls were over uh, 20 stories tall, some of these retaining walls. Uh, he began in 19 B.C. By the time Herod died in 4 B.C., most of it was completed, but the whole temple area wasn't actually completed until 63 A.D. So as Jesus and his disciples are there, construction is still going on. I mean, it took like 80 years to build the thing. It was finished. Seven years later, it's actually uh, destroyed. And so the disciples are amazed at this. And and they would have had a bit of a, kind of a tourist mentality. They didn't live in Jerusalem. Uh, They would have come maybe once or twice a year. And so, you know what, like you go, if you like, are a country person like me and live out in the sticks. When you go to a big city or like when I went to New York, I was like, Whoa, these buildings are amazing. Look at this place. You climb up the Empire State Building that was there before the Twin Towers fell. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. They would have they would have had a bit of that because they weren't from Jerusalem. Just like, this temple is amazing. Jesus, what do you think? Look at these these huge stones. Uh the temple was so amazing. Like covered in gold in many places on the outside and the inside. It shone so brightly because of the bright stones that people said you couldn't even look at the temple when it was sunny. Just amazing building with huge stones. And here's some crazy guy standing next to uh, one of these stones. They're massive stones. And that's not the biggest stone. In one of the Western Wall tunnels, in the Western Wall, there is a huge stone. It's 45 feet long. 12 feet high and 14 feet deep, and it was placed there. It's the fifth biggest stone ever moved in the history of the world without modern machinery. And so perfectly fit, you couldn't even fit a piece, you can't even fit a piece of paper. Amazing engineering. And the disciples, because this stone would have been, you know, open to the outside, you would have seen it back in those days. Now it's all buried because of all the destruction and rebuilding that's gone on. But Like massive stones, Jesus. Look at this. This is incredible, Jesus. What do you think of this building? And then Jesus gives the bad news. He says, do you see all these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And this is part of the good news of just being able to walk with Jesus. Because, you know, Jesus knows what's happening tomorrow. He knows what's going to happen in your life in a week. Wouldn't you want to hang around with someone like that? It's good to be under the wing of Jesus, right? So he tells them Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and every stone will be thrown down. And this is what happened in 70 A.D., In 66 AD, the Jews began to to revolt against the Romans because of some corrupt Roman official. They wanted to get rid of him. And it eventually ended up in an all-out war against the Romans. In fact, the Jews were fighting amongst themselves. Uh, Thousands upon thousands of Jews just killed themselves fighting for leadership in 70 AD. Uh, The Romans went throughout Israel, destroying every city. So a lot of the people fled to Jerusalem. It was packed with... People, When the Romans arrived at the city in 70 AD, they laid siege to the city for six months. They had 80,000 troops. The troops at one time built a wall all the way around the city so no one could escape or go into the city because they were trying to starve the people. And it only took six months. Uh, Partly, I mean, the city could have lasted for years with all the food supplies, but because the Jews were fighting amongst themselves, they were like burning each other's food supplies, and so they ran out of food to the point where they were uh, boiling wheat to eat. Josephus talks about a woman cooking her child because uh, thousands upon thousands of people died of hunger, and finally the Romans eventually broke through the walls. They slaughtered tons of people and uh, took Uh, 100,000 people as slaves. And so a horrible time, many people were killed. And and, uh, eventually, after they captured the city for the following months, if not a year, they spent just overturning buildings and destroying everything. The temple, its walls, every single uh, building within the city was overturned. As Jesus said, not one stone would be left on another. And that was pretty close to literal. The only stones that are still originally actually stacked on each other from the the Temple of Jesus Day, there's just only a few uh, along some of the retaining wall. Uh, interesting to note, the Roman Colosseum. You know where they got the money to build that? Most of it came from the gold from the temple. They destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, they took all the money they got from that, and that's where they financed the Roman Colosseum, and the workers who built that were actually the slaves, mostly the slaves, captured from the destruction of Jerusalem. And if you go to Rome, they got the, the Arch of Titus, uh, Domitian built that to com- commemorate his brother and the battles he won, and mostly... It was to commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem. And there you see a little image on the Arch of Titus taking away, like the menorah, the, the candlestick there. And so uh, it was a big battle and uh, a victory for, for Rome. Well, a few stones actually le- are left on top of one another. Here's the, this was the, the Robertson Arch. I'm going to use this excuse to show my pictures from Israel, so I thought it was good, eh? <laughs> uh And here it would have been on the temple. And if you go to Israel today, you can still actually see the original uh, part of Robertson's uh, arch. And these would be original stones. All these other ones here are uh, put up after later rebuilding. Uh, you see this is original... Uh, Paving stones from the time of Jesus that he would have walked on. And you can see they're all indented because when they destroyed the temple, they're they're moving these huge stones that would have fallen on this pavement and uh, pushing it right into the ground. And here's some of the original stones that have been piled up from the destruction. Also original to the temple are these stairs. They've uncovered these stairs. Uh, They're still there today. Jesus would have walked on those very stairs and also some of the, the lower stones of the Western Wall. That's where that, that huge stone is in the Western Wall tunnel. And most famously, the, the Wailing Wall on the Western Wall are original stones. But everything else was completely destroyed. And Jesus foretold this. Because Jesus, he knows the future. He, he knows what's coming. It's good to be uh, uh, walking with him. So then on verse 3, he finally gets to the Mount of Olives. He says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives... The disciples came to him privately, because they would have been shocked, like, this is going to be destroyed? It would be like us finding out, like, you know, all of Vancouver is going to be destroyed. I mean, we'd be like, what? That's impossible, right? So they asked Jesus, tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so they basically asked Jesus three questions, and this becomes the outline for this chapter, which mostly next week we're going to work on. When will the temple be destroyed, they ask? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? And the reason they ask these three questions together is because in their mind, the destruction of Jerusalem would be the same time as the, as the, as the end of the age. That they just pictured that's the end of the world when Jerusalem is destroyed. So they're wondering, when's this going to be and what's the sign of the end of the age? Now, Jesus, the hard part of this chapter is Jesus does not tell us when he is answering one question or the other. And this is why this chapter is by far the most difficult chapter out of the book of Matthew, if not one of the more difficult chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson rightly puts it this way. Few chapters of the Bible have called forth more disagreement among interpreters than Matthew 24 and its parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 21. The history of interpretation of this chapter is immensely complex, and that's an understatement. There have been lots of books written on all kinds of different views on this text, and so uh, we're going to try to make it a little more simple next week. And because of the nature of this chapter, it's going to feel more like you're in Bible school than, you know, preaching on a Sunday because... uh, uh, it's just the nature of this text. So the variety of interpretations are this. There are some people who will focus in more on one question than there are others. There are some people who see Matthew 24 as kind of like a, a, an end times road map. And so Matthew 24 is all about the end times. And if we just read Matthew 24 and get it all figured out, we can figure out what's going to happen in the future before Jesus' return. And they basically ignore Jesus' first question, and the whole context of this chapter, that is the destruction of the temple. They ignore that question. Others go more on the opposite extreme, and they ignore the idea of the end of the age and the sign of your your second coming, and they say this has all been fulfilled, all in 70 AD. There's nothing future, nothing about the second coming. There's others who have a more credible view, like N.T. Wright and and, uh, Sam Storms, and others who hold that the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age is the sign of Jesus coming to destroy Jerusalem and the sign of the end of the age, that's the temple age. So they too would say, all fulfilled in 70 AD. There's nothing future. There's others who say, this is kind of a mix of past and future, kind of blended up, dual prophecy. And so, and on and on and on and on and on it goes. <laughs> a complicated chapter. But the point is, if you ever come across someone who says, you know, I got this all figured out and you just come to me, and I'll tell you exactly what this chapter means, and everybody else is wrong, is someone who is, in my opinion, full of pride and has not very studied this chapter very widely. Uh, We do not know exactly uh, what Jesus is getting at, but we can come pretty close, and I think we can get a pretty good idea of what he's talking about. And so we're going to quickly look at these next few verses, and then we're done for today. So he asked these three questions. And then Jesus begins to answer these three questions, which when he's talking about, well, that's up for debate. He says this, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There are both famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of, because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so to summarize that, Jesus basically says there's a seven signs. Now one camp will say these were the seven signs preceding the destruction of Jerusalem. Another camp will say these are the seven signs that are going to happen only right before the end of the world, before Jesus returns. Another, and I kind of more this, is that these are seven signs that describe not only the events leading up to destruction of Jerusalem, but that all of history coming up to the second coming of Jesus. So the first sign is false prophets and false messiahs. Uh, lots of evidence of that happening before 70 A.D., Lots of that still happening today. And so when is that fulfilled? Well, some say earlier, some say later. Wars between nations and kingdoms. There's always been wars going on. There are numerous wars approaching 70 AD. In fact, uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem, two Roman emperors were killed. One committed suicide. All this turmoil and wars leading up to 70 AD. So it could have been fulfilled then. But lots of wars since. I mean, we've been through some world wars. Famines and earthquakes. The uh, book of Acts describes a famine. Uh, history tells us there were numerous earthquakes before 70 AD. Could have been fulfilled then, but we know there's famines and earthquakes ever since. Uh, persecution. Uh, like under Nero, before the destruction of Jerusalem. That's when like, the apostle Paul was killed. Uh, thousands upon thousands of Christians were killed by Nero under the Nero persecutions in the Colosseums. He would take Christians and tie them up in dead animals, and people would watch as they were eaten, or they, he would take Christians and, and s- shove them on posts and light them on fire to light up his gardens at night. Awful persecution be, leading up to 70 AD. And Nero, by the way, is the one who committed suicide. Uh, and he says, many will turn from the faith. Uh, or I should say that persecution and not only happened before 70 AD, but there were, there were 10 major persecutions of Christians under the Roman Empire. Nine of them were after. And today, the stats are that more Christians are being killed than ever before. Uh, like 170,000 Christians every year are killed for their faith. And you just do a little uh, looking into what's happening in Iraq right now under ISIS. And, and numerous, uh, hundreds of Christians have been killed and and, and booted out of, out of their homes with nothing Uh, to their name. I mean, it is still going on today, even worse than back then. Uh, Many will turn from the faith. I mean, as soon as you have extreme persecution, you deny Jesus or die. That happened before 70 AD. Some said, okay, I think I'll just deny Jesus, and they left the faith. It happens today. Sometimes people leave Uh, the faith because of persecution others because of cultural pressures you know because maybe it's just not cool to be a Christian or whatever they 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 turn from the faith so that's a sign love for one another will grow cold you can say that happened back then before 78 you can certainly say it's happening now in fact many of these things in the Bible say that these are signs of the the end of the age Uh, 1st Timothy 4 says the Holy Spirit tells us clearly That in the last time, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. Or 2 Timothy 3, in the last days, there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. In other words, selfishness was going to pervade the culture and this idea of of sacrificing for other people and servanthood and volunteerism, those things are are going to go down. And, uh, and definitely those things are, are happening today. And then the last one he signed, it says, the gospel will be preached in the whole world. And, and, uh, and you can say, well, that was fulfilled in 70 AD. Or we could say, still needs today. I mean, there's still people who haven't heard the gospel. Uh, but for those who say this is fulfilled in 70 AD, some people will challenge them. It's like, there's no way that happened in 70 AD. Well, actually, there are numerous verses that say it did. Romans 1.8 says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And there's two other verses that talk about the gospel already being out to the whole world because that word in their culture just meant the Roman Empire, it just meant inhabited land. so the Greek word means. And so there, of course, is this ongoing debate. Does this happen 70 AD? Is it still happening today? Is it just in the future? Personally, I think the key are these two verses, Jesus said, all these are the beginning of birth pains. And then verse 14, then the end will come. And I I think these things are describing the events that were happening in Jesus' day and are going to continue to happen all the way to the end of the age, the return of, of Christ. Now, in all this, we don't need to fear the way a lot of people in the world fear. I mean, when there's a new war or a new event coming, I mean, a lot of people freak out. Oh, it's the end of the world! I mean, they're freaking out. I mean, we don't need to live in that kind of fear that a comet's going to explode this planet or you know, scared all the time that the end of the world is coming. As long as you're under the wing of Jesus. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is you're killed, but that ends up being one of the best things because you end up in the new heavens and the new earth, right? Or Psalm 46 God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. When there's turmoil, when there's wars, when there's earthquake, when there's all these events around us, we can take refuge in our God knowing He is absolutely in control and absolutely in control of your life. And that's where it takes faith and trust to say, God, I don't know what you're doing because right now it hurts. I don't understand what is going on. I'm going I don't trust you, God. I'm gonna climb under your wing where there is refuge and strength and hope. And one more verse of encouragement at the end. Doesn't matter what's going on in this world because who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. In other words, sometimes those things happen. As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We're living in a sinful world. I mean, you just look at what's going on in Iraq right now. Christians are experiencing that. But are those going to separate us from Christ? No. In all things we are more than conquerors through Him who has loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are in control of, uh, of everything goes on. That nothing surprises you, nothing catches you off guard. And God, I thank you that you have a plan. that one day you are gonna wrap up all evil and all suffering and all pain and all sorrow. And God, you're gonna create a new heavens and a new earth where beauty and love is gonna reign. Where there'll be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more death and no more pain. But God, as we live in this time where you have allowed evil to create havoc, God, we pray you would give us faith in you. God, we pray that you would help us to trust you when life is difficult. We pray, God, that we would be people who are willing to snuggle under your wing where there is safety, where there is hope, where there is protection, where there is knowledge, where there is peace that passes all understanding. And God, I pray that for all of us, that we would be people who walk closely with your son Jesus, that we would not venture away from that wing. And God, that we would live without deep fear, that we would live without deep anxiety because we are close to the one whom nothing is impossible. And we thank you. And God, as we go from this place, we pray for blessing over us. We pray, God, that you would go with us in power. God, we pray you would give us hope this week in whatever situation we're working through, that we might love people around us, that we would not be like those people in the last days whose love grows cold for one another. May we be people whose love burns brightly for one another. And God, I pray you would be glorified in everything. In Jesus' name, amen. If uh, any of you need prayer, uh, I'll be up here and maybe if there's a couple others from the prayer team can come up here. Uh, We'd love to pray uh, with you and for you, whether you have something exciting going on in your life or a struggle or there's someone else in your life that needs prayer, uh, we'd like to be able to spend a little bit of time praying for you. Otherwise, God bless you and uh, we'll see you next week. Next week is potluck and so if you're going to show up, please bring a little dish or two or... Maybe cheesecake and you can stick that one in my office for me. Uh, (laughs) That's what happens when love grows cold. Uh, If you can't bring something, please just show up anyways. See you next week and God bless.